I felt like I had actually performed as a Quaker lawyer, even though I don't mention that at all in the book, which is to say, I went after the truth, I got the truth presented in the trial, and I treated my opponent, the deputy sheriff, with civility. Welcome to episode 32 of the Western Friend Podcast, a joint production of Western Friend and the Soul Force Ones. On this episode, we share a conversation with Nancy Marshall, where we explored ideas from her recent article in Western Friend magazine titled, Friendly Truth to Power. Nancy is a retired lawyer and former director of the Arizona Civil Liberties Union. She's a member of Phoenix Friends Meeting and is the author of several books, including her most recent, A Dry Hate, which you can find a link to in this episode's notes. And now, let's get to it. We're here with Nancy Marshall, who is a retired lawyer and former executive director of the Arizona Civil Liberties Union and author of A Dry Hate, Power Versus the People. So, Nancy, I think I want to start with the book and ask you, what was, why did you write the book? What was the inspiration for writing this historical narrative? Well, I, I think the first question is, why did I give it such a title, A Dry Hate? I mean... Why would a Quaker do that? And part of the history there is that Arizona is known for its dry heat. Everybody knows that you can fry an egg on the sidewalk in the summer, blah, blah, blah. And it seemed like it was a good takeoff because the, the amount of abuse of power against Latinos, activists, and political opponents was really hateful. So it seemed like a good title. And even though I like to think of myself as a good Quaker, and a good Quaker might never use such a title, I thought it was the right title. So we're stuck with that. Um, Why did I write the book? Well, it started one day when I got a call from a friend who's a professor at ASU saying, Nancy, our friend Jason got arrested. What do we do? I was a practicing attorney at the time, so I'm the Quaker lawyer who actually slides into the book here and there. But I said, oh, I'll I'll go bail him out, not knowing how to bail out anybody because I didn't do defense work. And I got down to the jail and a man in a suit was there and I tapped on his shoulder. He looked like an attorney. I said, I'm here to bail somebody out. I was in a suit also. Can you help me out? He said, let's go back into this room. He turned out to be bailing out there, there had been four people arrested for standing after public speaking engagement at a board of supervisors meeting. They had applauded. They had been asked to sit down and be quiet. They sat down and were quiet. And then they were hauled out of their seats and arrested. And I know all this in gruesome detail because the board of supervisors which oversees the sheriff and the county jails and whatnot, have a video of everything they do in their auditorium. And as part of the discovery, they had to give us their video. So I saw exactly what happened. But even before I knew exactly what happened, I heard what happened. These kids got arrested. I bailed them out. And I I bailed out two, two young men. Jason was a member of meeting 
but he was already snapped up by a lawyer who wanted to go after the sheriff. And the other kid, Joel, was from Washington State. And I said, Joel, I'll defend you until some better lawyer comes along. But since we were all pro bono, no better lawyer came along. And I defended Joel. A fifth person was cited the next day for, they were all cited for disturbing the peace. And so there were five defendants. And as the case evolved, I got to know more and more. Jason was a real insider in community activism. And the number of stories he told me, along with the amount of coverage in our local newspaper, I have to say it was a very conservative newspaper with an absolutely thorough and detailed factual set of journalists who provided all the information anybody needed to know to get the sheriff out of office didn't happen because people vote the way they vote. But there was so much information and I thought, I'm here, I, I had just finished a different book. I feel led to write a novel about this, not nonfiction because I would say more academic people than I can do that and actually more academic people than I have done that. So there are some really good books about this period of time, which is roughly 2000 to 2014. I condensed it more like 2006 to 2010. But there's some academic books and there's good journalism, factual journalism on virtually everything that happened. But I felt led to tell a story that people might like to read because as it turns out, it's a good read, it's a good novel has good characters, people like it. Um, and I also wanted to explore not only all the things that have happened, but what are the people like who are involved in this story? And some of the people that I explored a little bit are people that I would normally call the bad guys. There was the deputy sheriff who I personally cross-examined, so he and I was last in the list of five attorneys to cross-examine him. And I thought they had all, the other four who were defense attorneys had all missed the boat because they kept yelling at him. What I did that I think absolutely turned this case was I really wanted the truth to be out. And the truth was in the video from the Board of Supervisors meeting. So... There had been a previous trial for a previous issue, the, the people with the doggy masks, and that was a real case too. The video expert couldn't get the video equipment to work. And I thought, I don't trust anybody. I'm not letting this happen to me. I went down to the courthouse two weeks ahead of the trial. I said to the staff, I need to have this video work in your equipment. They said, oh, go into the courtroom. It'll work, just pop in the machine. Well, it didn't work. So I went back to them. I said, I'm not leaving until you and I know how to work this video in this courtroom. And it took almost two hours of fiddling around and calling in other people. But at the end of that afternoon, I knew that I could show the video. I didn't have to rely on anybody else to present the truth to the judge, which was what I wanted to do. Um, Meanwhile, back in the novel, the deputy sheriff, the deputy sheriff's son, the county assistant county attorney, his son, they're all characters who 
look like bad guys, but they're also real human beings. And I tried to just explore how come somebody might be such a bad guy, but be really human as well. And I found that a really satisfying experience to to write about, along with all the other abuse of power episodes that I learned about, like a burglary on a woman's home, who was, she was an activist, and she had everything on her laptop. And there was a burglary on her home, and it was stolen. And that meant that all of the names of all of her contacts were now available to whoever stole the laptop. What actually happened at the trial that I found a surprise was that at the end of the trial, the judge looked at the deputy sheriff and said, you should be ashamed of having arrested any of these people. He looked at the assistant county attorney and said, you should be ashamed of bringing this case to trial. Everybody's innocent and they should bring a case to me on why they should get damages for violation of their civil rights. Now that's a pretty strong statement from a judge to say to the prosecution. So when the announcement of innocent was made, everybody gets up and they're all cheering. And the deputy sheriff came over and shook my hand, said, good job. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I just, I had just, what we had done in the trial was I just was sort of polite with him. And we timed the episode from when people were told to sit down to when they sat down to when they were arrested. And it was not five minutes as he had testified for four different attorneys. It was five seconds. And I said, I think, I think that's four seconds. And he said, no, it's five seconds. And I said, Oh, five seconds. Sure. You're right. Not five minutes. I was very quiet about it, but he knew I had won, but he also knew I hadn't yelled and screamed. And I really appreciated the fact that he came over and said, you did a nice job. You're basically polite instead of yelling. So I felt like I had actually performed as a Quaker lawyer, even though I don't mention that at all in the book, which is to say, I went after the truth. I got the truth presented in the trial and I treated my opponent, the deputy sheriff, with civility, which is something I don't always do, but I, I really think it's our job as friends to try to do that. And it's so easy to get on the bandwagon of we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And it's very hard in a large public setting to even be having a conversation with an individual with whom you might disagree or who may be your opponent. But what's important for us to keep in mind is they're a human being too. We believe there's God in that human being too, even though we don't like what they say, what they believe, what they're pushing. There's something that we have to, we have to act as if we believe it's true. <laughs> and I don't mean that we need to pretend. I mean, we really need to try to act 
which we need to really reach into ourselves to believe it's true. As as you were talking about treating the deputy sheriff with civility, I was thinking of the word humanely, which means compassion and benevolence. And somewhat ironically, humans don't necessarily treat other humans humanely. And I was just curious, the process in writing the book to prepare or to characterize someone who you might have negative perceptions about, you know, in terms of the real life person and then the character in the book. And, and what's the process to present them as a human being? Like, what, what does that actually look like in the book? Well, you know, you try to think about what's what's going on in somebody's life. And I actually don't know Mr. Deputy Sheriff personally, but I thought this one might, his wife died. And so missing your, he was, he was a good man. He loved his wife. He was, he didn't cheat on her. He didn't mess around. He, so how did that affect both him and his son? Cause he was gung ho for the sheriff and he was gung ho for, you know, getting the aliens out of the country and gung ho about arresting people. But he also was sad that he lost his wife. And he wasn't a perfect dad because he was so absorbed in work in order to forget about the fact that his wife has died and his son sort of lost both mom and dad's not around all the time. But the son is latching on to what dad's latching on to because that's what son's frequently do. The sheriff sounds good. And the son is not an A student. He's not going to go to Harvard, but he thinks he really believes in something. And then it turns out not to look like what he thought it would look like, which I think happens a lot. I mean, the, the I'll give you different some different examples of when I've seen changes in people. I grew up in a very anti-Semitic enclave in Southern Long Island, New York, as my husband can attest. But when I got in law school, I was dating my law professor. So what if he was younger than I was? <laughs> I think I didn't worry about the power dynamics. And we liked playing tennis and squash together. And so I invited him out to Long Island to, I don't know, for an overnight or something. And my mother met him and he was such a nice person that I just watched her change. She didn't say anything inappropriate, but she didn't say anything like wildly uh, like a convert. He just behaved in a civilized way. And I could just see her change because of being presented with a circumstance that was really new and different for her. It's, there's a real possibility for change when, when we're not pushing people, we're not in their face and they don't have to fight back like this, you know? When you were interrogating the deputy sheriff, was the fact that you treated him humanely, civilly, did that, in your opinion, allow him to put his guard down in a way so that he was able to acknowledge that it had been five seconds, like he was less in a combative environment than he had been previously with the other attorneys? 
Well, the other attorneys were all shouting at him. I just, I was really surprised because I'm not a defense lawyer. I just thought all the other attorneys were being activists instead of attorneys. Um, but what happened really was that we, he and I were both on the same page here. We were both using our the timer on our watch to time the video. And he had testified several times they were disruptive for five minutes. And frankly, I don't know about you, but I've been in situations that are emotionally so hot that I'm not, I don't remember everything and I don't know how the time goes by. I don't keep things clearly in mind. And all I said was, let's watch the video together and time it. And he couldn't escape the fact that the timing was five seconds. And the fact that it, that it was only five seconds, the judge would know. I mean, if he said, no, 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 it was really five minutes, would look ridiculous because then he would look like he was lying. I can imagine him feeling at the time like it was five minutes. But when just sitting down and watching the video saying, oh, it's five seconds. Because I think, honestly, he knew this case was a loser. The district attorney knew it was a loser. They they knew it was a loser. So they were doing it for political reasons, to weaken political opponents. And he was a tool of the sheriff's office. And the assistant county attorney was a tool of the county attorney. And they knew they had a losing case. And so he could bluster when he was just being interviewed. But when he looked at a video, he could just agree that's what happened. Because um, I never... I never demanded that he, I never argued with him about anything. I have to confess, one of my, my absolute favorite moment in the trial was, and old people here will get this. So I'm, I'm asking him, you wore the brown shirt? Yes. And the other guy from the county wore the white shirt? Yes. And then I said, but neither of you was wearing a white hat, were you? And, and then I said, and then so you took my client out of the seat and, and put him in handcuffs. The judge looked at me like, how dare you? But we old people know that when the cowboys were on TV in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the bad guys wore black hats and the good guys wore white hats. So it was a joke that I was making at the guy's expense. He didn't get it because he wasn't old enough. The judge got it, but he didn't think it was funny. So I knew I had to move right along. But after the trial was over, somebody else who was also old said, I loved that. It was, it was just naughty, 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 naughty. Um, so we were basically just looking at the facts. And he was agreeing that the facts were what the video showed them to be. That was pretty easy for him to do. Another thing that started it off well was what you're supposed to do in a defense trial is you're supposed to have the prosecution identify your client because we had five. And if he couldn't identify my client, there wasn't a case against my client. And it happened that my client, who happened to be black, also happened to be the only well-dressed client of all of them. The rest of them looked like hippies. 
And Joel was in a three-piece suit. <laughs> and I said, can you identify my client? And the deputy sheriff said, yes, he's the one over there who's in the three-piece suit. He's dressed so well. I wish I could dress that well. And I said, well, thank you. Because he had just given my side a compliment. So how are you supposed to take that? You have to thank them. And I, it, I felt like it set us off that he'd done his job properly and I thanked him for doing his job and we moved on. So Nancy, I feel like we live in very polarizing times where we're unwilling to, whether it's acknowledge that we're wrong or even consider the humanity of another person. Like, it's very easy to vilify, categorize anyone who thinks differently than us as simply being wrong or being insert whatever expletive you can or, or name calling. I, I wonder your process in preparing for the book and trying to humanize the characters, regardless of how the real person that is based on how we might feel about right. them, is something that we as human beings, as Quakers can and should practice more like what what is it from that process of humanizing these characters can we bring into our real day-to-day -day lives we're also limited in the sense that we come from whatever cultural background we do but i'm writing another book it's on a it's on creating a community garden and one of the things that belongs in the community garden is that there are juvenile delinquents who are there kind of on their community service time with a fellow who's been around for a long while. I happened to interview them this afternoon at their group home where they are. And so they're wards of the court at this point. I feel like the fact that I worked in the juvenile court was helpful, but I'm looking at four black males in this house with this little old white lady. <laughs> How do I relate? because they actually were not hostile, they were very polite, but and theoretically, I'm more sympathetic to them because they're the downtrodden as opposed to the horrible enemy on the other side. Nonetheless, why would they like me? You know, there's a need for me to try to find common ground with them. And so I asked them what they liked about the garden and the fact that they had to dig post holes and pull out weeds. And I said, well, did you like that? Because, you know, we all have to pull weeds out of the garden. And they said, they both said, yeah, because we felt like we were helping the community. And I said, that is a really thoughtful thought to have about, you know, your, your place. Cause basically they're asking you to do the, the grunt work. And they both seemed to feel that I was acknowledging that they were at the bottom of the heap in terms of, what people get to do in a garden. So what I would say is that I was trying to let them know that I appreciated what they were doing. I don't know about being in a, in a, in a rally when somebody's going to start yelling at me. <laughs> I don't know how to handle that. But I don't know if that answers your question, actually. Well, maybe the common thread there was acknowledging their humanity maybe when talking to these young black men at the community garden it was acknowledging their predicament and then similarly when you're talking or 
interrogating the deputy sheriff, you're treating him as a human being. I was trying to explore the common thread there. Well, is it I'll tell you another piece that has been going through my mind, and it it's me being able to acknowledge when I'm not right. I have a girlfriend that I do puzzles with, and her husband only watches Tucker Carlson and Fox News, and she pretty much does too. And so we know that we don't agree on politics, but we like doing puzzles, and our daughters were in the same grade at public school. And recently she said something about how it was Biden's fault about not giving, this is interesting, not giving enough money to Ukraine. It was Biden's fault because he has the power to give more money to Ukraine. And I thought, huh. So the following week, I followed up with her and I said, you know, I don't, you know, you mentioned that last week and I could be wrong, but what I remember is back around Johnson and Nixon, there was a whole lot of presidential power to spend a whole lot of money on war stuff and that Congress tried to start taking the power back because the president had too much power. And I said, I honestly don't remember, but it could be that Biden doesn't have as much power as Johnson and Nixon did and that Congress really does have more power over how money gets spent. But just a thought, I don't really know. And we left it there and she may or may not have changed her mind, but I thought I gave her enough information that she could reconsider what she had learned. And I gave her a whole lot of room to say, oh, Nancy's wrong. And so once you can, she can say, I'm wrong, she can say, well, maybe she's not that wrong. You know, it's kind of work on that. I've, I've had a number of situations recently where I've had to reconsider my point of view um, I'm I'm pushing, I'm trying to get signatures for a petition on the Arizona ballot for universal abortion access. And I asked a friend of mine at the gym to sign it. And he said, well, no, I don't sign petitions because he's a journalist. He works for AP. And he said, but Nancy, you shouldn't be doing this here. And I went, huh. And he said, the reason you shouldn't be doing this here is because this is everybody's safe space. And he said, I'm I'm with you on the topic, but I don't think you should be doing it here. And I thought, I really appreciate and, and not only that, but we were in, we were inside the squash board so nobody else could hear that he was admonishing me, which is always a good way to receive correction with nobody else listening. And I thought, you know, I'm taking that to heart because I think he's right. I wouldn't have I hadn't thought it through fully because I was so enthusiastic to do what I was doing, but he was right. That was not the place to be doing what I was doing. So I think working on giving ourselves more room to admit that we're not perfect or we're wrong. When we're in conversation with the people who we want to persuade because we know they're wrong. <laughs> um, might be a good starting place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, what you were describing to me sounded like humility and embracing the very real possibility that I could be wrong. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, that thing about wanting to be right, I think with children, it's really hard. When you tell children they're wrong, they don't like that either. And it takes a while for them to be comfortable admitting they're wrong if they've really been badgered. So it's probably the same with people with whom we disagree on political stuff. I worry about the the large picture, like, you know, Congress and the House and the Senate, because so many of those people seem to be there to promote their, their sinecure of having that job forever and being faced with recognizing that they might not be right doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter if you know you're lying, you know, then, then it's a hard nut to crack to have a conversation with somebody if they really don't care. But I think most people to some degree do care. We may have more similar values than we realize. They just, they just fall out differently. Um, like we might be pro-family, but we've been trained to hear different things about what pro-family is. And so if you could start having a conversation with this is what I think it means, it sounds like we're not on the same page there, but this is why I think what I think. Somebody might be open to saying, oh, I see their point, which is a start. Or just simply, we're not enemies, you know, which is I, I feel like the media sometimes wants us to be polarized because it's more fun for the news. Yeah, I wonder if it's because we buy into a particular identity. So I'm conservative or I'm progressive or I am this, this label. And so then I have to really commit to that identity. And so even though you might bring up a good point or an alternative idea that I think has some validity, I kind of revert back to my talking points and to this ideology, perhaps, that I identify with and defend that to the death. Yeah. Somebody just last weekend said to me, I think you're more radical than I am. I'm kind of a, a moderate. And I said, you know, I, I think I'm more moderate than you think I am. <laughs> we, I think we both sort of agree on, wouldn't it be nice if, it, if things were stable? Um, and he kind of laughed and realized we might have elements that are diverse, but we really what we really don't want is a civil war or a world, third world war, stuff like that. I had another piece in the book, which I think is has to do with speaking truth to power. And there's a section in the back having to do with recognizing um, propaganda. And what I hope people can sometimes do is, instead of just saying, I don't like that, just say, what it, first of all, what is propaganda? Propaganda is basically untruth. It's telling lies to get people to agree with you and, or slanting it in such a way, leaving out essential elements of the truth that they'll fall for your story instead of the whole story. And I think it would be a fun exercise for people to look at what people say and try to analyze just the pieces of what what is propaganda and what different kinds of propaganda exist. I know this is a little off topic from, but it's again, if you want to get to the truth, 
what is disinformation? What is labeling and stereotyping? What is uh, fear baiting? You know, when you're fear baiting, you're getting everybody scared that the hordes are coming across the border when actually that's not what's happening. Um, so I think it might be a useful exercise for people to look at look at your daily news and see if you can find the propaganda in it just for fun, just to sharpen up your own mind. I have an example, actually. So I teach a second second year business class and we were talking about misinformation and disinformation today. And one of the examples, you might remember this Trident ad from the 1970s. Four out of five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum for their patients who chew gum. And, and we were having a conversation about whether this was unethical. I'm interested in, based on your definition of propaganda, determining if you would characterize this as propaganda. Because the idea is to convey to a consumer that four out of five dentists recommend Trident gum. When in actuality, what it's saying is that of people who chew gum, if the dentist is presented with that, 80% of them would say you should chew sugarless gum rather than gum with sugar. I was just curious, is that a form of propaganda? Is it unethical? Ah, that was, it I see what you mean, yeah. Um, I think to, it's, it's misleading. It is misleading, absolutely. It, it's, so yeah, it, it's a little bit of propaganda because if, if they were trying to, if they were being more accurate, they would say sugarless instead of trident, among other things. Wouldn't they? Isn't, isn't all advertising misleading to some degree, right? The idea that if you buy this product, well, then you, Nancy, are going to be beautiful. And, you know, like that's the, the idea that a lot of capitalism and commercials are trying to convey is the idea that you need this product. And so we're going to encourage you. We're going to mislead you so that you buy this. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. What I found um, amusing in looking up definitions in a couple of different dictionaries was that in the definition of propaganda, the definition always referred to the Catholic Church. <laughs> I thought, oh, how about that? We've we've moved on to politics, but whoever wrote the dictionary spotted it there. And sometimes in our Quaker meeting, just for fun, when somebody comes new to meeting, a good friend of mine, who's a member of meeting will say, here's a little piece of our propaganda, which sort of throws people off because they think, oh, it's a pack of lies, but just to lighten it up a little bit and say, you know, our point of view is our point of view. So of course, ours is not propaganda, it's the truth. <laughs> well, thanks, what man. else should we cover? I think we've well, I, done- I was gonna pause and invite others uh, to ask yeah. me directly of you, if they may feel so inclined. I think power works both ways. That there are sometimes instances where you're dealing with people who have great power over you, like a sheriff over people in a community. Um, but there are also times when because of your financial status or you're in the legislature that you've got power over people and the 
to me, the the issue is, and again, it breaks down to integrity, that you treat people the same um, with respect and looking for that of God in them, whether they have power over you that you fear, or they may have, or you may be dealing with someone who, who fears your power. Yes, I, I mentioned recently the, uh, an old Quaker book called Speaking Truth to Power. When I lived in New York, I think Larry Apsey was the author of the book, and he was old when I was young. And I've, as Vance has mentioned, virtually all of us have some power when we are talking, and we have some power when we are listening. It's the, the, the book was written pretty much about how community people, especially Quakers, deal with the city and the state and government officials who have a whole lot more certain kind of power than we do. But at the same time, that thought applies to virtually every conversation. I can feel like I'm speaking my truth, but you have the power to process what I say and accept it, reject it, think of something else. And sometimes people are afraid of your power or our power. I'm very new to the American game and the American political game in particular because we only came to U.S. eight years ago, having spent pretty well all our lives in Southern Africa and what is now Zimbabwe in particular. So that country operated as a one-party state effectively when it was ruled by the white minority. And in 1980, when it became formally and legally independent, having it spent 15 years as uh, an illegal independent, it was inconceivable, especially as a white person, that I felt it was not my task now after independence to decide how things would be done. I would get on with my job. I would try to live my life with some integrity. And that, that was a, a very difficult thing to do just as before, it was difficult to kind of go against the predominant white culture which ran the country. So here I am, uh, towards the end of my life, having spent six years as a resident, we became citizens just over two years ago. And so it's been very exciting to me to 
to feel, yeah, here you get listened to to some extent. And working a bit with FCNL and learning something about the lobbying process and what results that can be has been really eye-opening for me. And now we are facing this business of an election at the end of the year in which the choices matter quite a lot. And I was asking myself, as an old, not too active person, what should I be doing apart from sitting at my computer and reading daily news? And I picked up something which I had the idea of in Zimbabwe before independence, which I never had the courage to actually implement there. And this was, I decided, I would simply go in our neighborhood from house to house and say, I'm a new American and I'm very interested to know how Americans are feeling about this situation because we have an election at the end of the year. So I found myself with the energy enough to, to go from door to door until I find somebody who will talk with me. And when I've done that, trying to listen more than have an argument, I've managed so far four, four households. And I, I'm, I feel I'm getting better at that, but I'm still... I'm still tending to kind of jump in too early. But each of these four have said, please come back anytime you like. So I'm going to get up to about 10, maybe, if I get that far, and then mm -hmm. I'll try to come back to some of these. But the idea of allowing people to actually express themselves, it's picking up with what Nancy was saying or mentioned about a safe space. And I'm really struggling with this idea of safe space because I'm sure that my most meaningful times over my whole life have been when I have not been objectively in a safe space, but somehow in many of those, I've been kind of possessed by a safe space. I don't think I've said it like that ever before, but that's how it feels. Well, welcome to the chaos of the United States. Um, actually, if I may, there were a couple of things that you said, Richard, to maybe draw some threads or connections to what Nancy had shared. As you were speaking, it just occurred to me, and this is something I think I generally have felt, is as human beings, I think we aspire to be seen, to be heard. And so when Nancy was talking to those young Black men at the community garden, my sense is even though there's a lot of differences in terms of gender and race and age, these young men felt seen and heard. Um, and, and I think when you're talking to the deputy sheriff, 
being respectful, even as you're interrogating, the person felt seen and heard and maybe let their guard down to some degree. And then the other thought, Richard, that idea of being in a safe space, I think that shouldn't be confused with playing. So you can be in a safe space. And I think what you characterized in terms of being unsafe is being in a place where maybe you're still taking risks. You're, you're still uncomfortable, perhaps. And I think in those spaces where we take those risks, say something that we believe, even though it may hurt the other person or offend them, that opens up discourse and dialogue. And I think we need more of that, where people are knocking on doors or just engaging with people across difference, because that's what breaks down. That, that's what allows us to embrace the humanity, right? Like, oh, this person, I've never spoken to a person who believes this. They're not so bad. They're not actually X, Y, and Z. They're a human being, just like me. And we yeah. like to play puzzles, even though we vehemently disagree about politics. But they're, they're a human being, and I can get along with them. And we have things in common. What do you think, Nancy? Any yeah, last yeah. thoughts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th I thought what Richard was saying was that even though it might look like an unsafe space, that he had kind of a peace in his, his heart about how he was how he was being, and that made the safe, that made the space safe. Even if something dangerous could happen, he was spiritually at peace with himself. Is that what you were saying, Richard? I think that, that that's a nice way of putting it, Nancy, yes. Okay, good. Well, I feel very grateful to have had this time, this conversation. Any lingering thoughts? If we don't continue here, we can, Mary has everybody's email. We can continue being in touch with each other in the future if we want to continue conversation. I do want to say that the in, the introduction to the book, I think it's called actually, yeah, the, it's called the prologue. If, if you'd like to know where the idea of the dry hate came, it's just two pages. And I if I get your address, I'll just mail you the two pages because it's a, I think it's a fun read. It goes, it starts at the beginning of time and ends in today. Thank you all friends for being here, Mary and John and Richard and Vance. I felt like we had a very thoughtful discussion and some exchange of ideas. I really appreciated it. Likewise. Yeah, thank you. And that does it for another episode of the Western Friend Podcast. Friends, thank you so much for listening and a huge thank you to Nancy Marshall for joining us. Don't forget to check out her article, Friendly Truth to Power, in the episode notes, as well as a link where you can find her most recent book, The Dry Hate. And remember, you can listen to all of the wonderful past episodes of the Western Friend podcast wherever you listen. Stay tuned for new episodes released the first Saturday of every month. And until next time, peace. <laughs>